Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have, been, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive what grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in all in do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I always love the end of that reading where it talks about singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs uh, as we encourage each other. And uh, I've already been busted. One of my old mates said, I remember that story from when you gave it in night church uh, way back when. I'm hoping that it was uh, sort of like our two friends were talking before of the memories of a a word in season at the right time and I'm certainly praying that there will be uh, a sentence or a scripture or a story that uh, sticks with you from today that is of great help to you in the future by God's grace. Let's pray again for that. Heavenly Father, help us to grasp your great grace that we might give grace to others through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Are you a Lucy Darcy? Bit of a blast from the past here. Uh, C.J. Mahaney's excellent little book, Humility, uh, reminded me of the Peanuts cartoon with Linus curled up in a chair, reading a book of course, while Lucy comes up behind him with a funny look on her face, wiggle on her mouth I think, and Lucy says it's very strange, it happens just by looking at you. Linus asks what's happened? And crabby Lucy replies, I can feel a criticism coming on. (laughs) In Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Mr Darcy is described as a man, quote, who never looks at any woman but to see a blemish. I admit that secondhand. Not into Austen novels. I did manage Jane at school, and, and fortunately, I think, I was usually still at church on Sunday nights when those BBC versions are on. 
And the question is whether you function like a Lucy or a Darcy, often critical of others. As you look at the people around you, do you easily notice the blemishes? Is there a simmering, simmering grumpiness about your life? Are you a Lucy Darcy? And to be honest, I have to answer the question too often. Yes. I said earlier how revolutionary it was for me to discover Matthew 18 principle of dealing direct with the person I had conflict with. But in that way of young men, I think I became mechanical in applying the principle. You end up thinking you've got to raise every little gripe with every person, you become a critic. For me, another turning point was reading Proverbs twelve sixteen in my personal devotions. Um, this is within the last decade. Quote, A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Is that one on the outline or not? Yeah. Uh, this talk's the most flippy, and so I've tried to put some of the scriptures on your page. A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Put, put into words what I was starting finally to figure out myself. Sometimes we just need to let something go through to the keeper without taking a swing at it. It's the topic of bearing with one another, of patience, of overlooking an offence. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It's to his glory to overlook an offence. I found I needed to pray these sort of proverbs for myself, uh, 12, 16, 19, 11, actually often on a daily basis for some periods of my life. Let's unpack this idea of overlooking an offence bit by bit. When? When should we overlook? Now John MacArthur's answer was whenever possible, especially if the offence is petty or unintentional. Uh, MacArthur notes, 1 Corinthians 13.5, love is not easily angered. So simple. In a phrase that appeals to me, he says, believers should have a sort of mutual immunity to petty offences. A mutual immunity to petty offences. Later in the talk outline, you may have noticed I misspelt forbearance with an extra E in the four. My spell checker picked me up on this, the red line, and actually I'm a pedant with spelling. I suggest you could overlook it. It's a bit too trivial. In fact, I looked it up in the dictionary, and unlike my computer, which redlined it, the Macquarie listed forbearance with the extra E as a legitimate alternative, which reminds us of another reason to overlook an offence. We need to distinguish between matters of right and wrong from differences of opinion. So it's often not a matter of good and evil, but of wisdom or foolishness, or even just different options. Certainly it's not wrong to discuss and even debate matters of opinion, but it's not often worth a fight for a matter of taste or wisdom. All right, and what about the big issues? Well, the Bible even indicates that if you are the only injured party, you might voluntarily overlook a much larger offence, even if it was public or deeply hurtful. Now, scripture contains several examples of such grace. Think about how Joseph accepted his brothers and they came to him in Egypt, even though they'd sold him into slavery. 
Or 2 Samuel 16, less well known, King David overlooking the insults Shimei hurled at him. Shimei came from Saul's clan, cursed David, threw stones at him for taking the throne after Saul. One of the king's advisers asked, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go off and let me go over and cut off his head. It was a good day for conflict resolution. Uh, David refused this revenge. Was happy to leave judgment to God, just ignored the insults. And Proverbs actually says another time it's often better to ignore an offence than to confront it is when the offender is a fool. Proverbs 23.9 Do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Sometimes speaking up does more harm than it's, you know, if it's likely to entrench stubbornness. Proverbs 26.4 there's a time not to answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself, sinking to his level. Sometimes you'll be wasting your breath. Now, of course, Proverbs are wise generalisations uh, for a context. They're not generally universal laws. So the very next verse, Proverbs 26.5, says there's a time when you must answer a fool according to his folly or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes it's loving, it's tough love, uh, to expose a person's stupidity in the cold, to the cold, hard light of day so that he and possibly others can see the bankruptcy of his deeds and further harm might be prevented. It's a judgment there. So... That's when to overlook, but what about why? Why overlook an offence? There are pragmatic reasons. Sometimes getting hot under the collar, worked up about your rights, just count the cost of the conflict before you plunge into it. Disputes can, they just absorb such an enormous amount of time and energy and and even money. That's how some lawyers get rich, isn't it? Um, Ken Sandy points out that unresolved conflict can rob you uh, of your time but damage your relationships and ruin your reputation and even imprison you in resentment. Um, on the standing committee, the diocese, there's a, uh, a QC and he specialises in um, wills, amongst some other things. And he's given me examples where he's advised clients who wish to fight for their rights over some matter, like a will, that it will cost them many times more than they are ever likely to recover, and they insist. It's a matter of principle. And then, of course, when the bills come in and they fail to get the satisfaction they hoped for... They want to blame the lawyer, even though the lawyer warned them. And on the other hand, if you do finally convince a client to settle, sometimes they say, why don't we do this earlier? It wasn't worth all the aggro. I was preaching on Matthew 5 just recently at church. Verse 25 says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it with him while you're still on the way. Another reason you might overlook an offence is if the cost to God's reputation is too high. This seems, I think, to be part of the reasoning in 1 Corinthians 6, where Christians are warned against going to court against each other. Now, Ken Sandy and others do not think this is an absolute prohibition on Christians taking legal action, but clearly there, verse 7 says, it could often be better to be wronged or cheated and that to go to court implies the defeat of Christians and it shames the name of Christ. But the fundamental reason you may overlook an offence is love. Actually, I better say that, hadn't I? 
Proverbs 17, verse 9. Whoever covers over an offence promotes love, uh, fosters love. We, we, we normally wouldn't expect to say that, would we? A cover-up sounds like. It's, it's forbearance. It has a root, a foundation in the character of God who is love and who has been so patient with us. Uh, if any of you were to choose one scripture as a memory verse uh, this day, to take from this day, you could do far worse than memorising Colossians three ten to 12. I'm not expounding it, I'm just reciting it. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Could you memorise those three verses? The Christian worldview is cross-shaped forgiveness. More of that the last talk. But there are some circumstances when we should not overlook an offence. For example, when there's been a serious offence against others. Uh, The prophets often urged religious and civil leaders to speak up when the weak were exploited. Isaiah 111 says, Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. No overlooking. Uh, Jeremiah 22.3 likewise says, Rescue from the hand of his oppressor the one who's been robbed. That's why we must always speak up to the proper authorities in the case of child abuse or domestic violence or fraud. Cover-ups like that are never appropriate. In the New Testament, in Galatians 2, uh, this morning I briefly referred to Paul rebuking Peter for drawing back from table fellowship with the Gentile Christians. And think about it, since Paul himself was a Jew, that didn't affect Paul directly. He could still eat with Peter but it affects his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And justice demands that he could not overlook Peter's conduct. And that also leads to another example where we can't overlook an offence, that that case of serious false teaching. Uh, See, with Galatians 2, although the issue was table fellowship, very practical, it was conduct that denied the great teaching that we are justified by faith only, not by our works, such as observing the Jewish laws like the circumcision and the dietary laws, was denied. Another reason not to overlook an offence is where overlooking would probably hurt the offender. By example, for, uh, for example, by allowing him to continue down the wrong path. So Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. I'm trying to think of an example. Maybe um, someone tending towards alcohol abuse. You know, Even if they're a placid drinker and they never bother anyone else, might raise the matter. Uh, Just before the command to love your neighbour, by the way, it's an Old Testament command. 
Leviticus 19.17 says, Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so you're not sharing his guilt. It's, it's the, warn, the correction back to first talk. It's tied up with love. Another reason not to overlook a sin is where it ruins the reputation of Christ. I think the most famous example of this is 1 Corinthians 5, where the Corinthians are tolerating incest between a Christian man and his father's wife. And Paul is scandalised because that type of immorality was not even typical then of pagans. And Paul also sees there that confronting the man and in that case expelling him from the church is the only chance for his spirit to be restored, presumably by shocking him to his senses. And one last situation where you may need to say something is where you are not actually overlooking the offence, though you might want to. It's actually find it keeps creating a wall between you. What I mean here, uh, it's a minor issue, but you just keep finding the frustrations building up, building up, same minor thing keeps happening, you're trying to ignore it and you just can't get it out of your head, and if you're going to keep brooding on it and it's impeding your relationship, well, something's got to change. Best of all would be your attitude, but it might actually help, it might be useful to bring it up. So I've given quite a number of examples where you can't overlook a matter or you might not overlook a matter. But I'm saying actually that the the main point is we can apply Proverbs 19.11 much more often than we realise. A man's wisdom gives him patience is to his glory to overlook an offence. That is, most of life's relationships are more like test cricket than 2020. 2020, you've got to swing at every ball... Test cricket, the wise player lets a lot of balls go through to the keeper. How? But how do we overlook an offence? I'm I'm glad that fairly early on in our marriage, Karen taught me to ask, does it really matter? Ask myself, does it really matter? Uh, We had, we possibly... not confirming anything here, we possibly still have different expectations about tidying up and folding socks and different methods in the kitchen and uh, of hanging out the washing. And uh, it is surprising how aggravating those tidiness differences can seem. And I need to ask, does it really matter? Time and again something might annoy you. Try asking, does it really matter? It's important to see at this point that we're speaking about really overlooking an offence. Because sometimes we mentally, we remain silent, but we mentally file it away and we brood. I think that's actually a form of denial, conflict avoidance. And it generally doesn't work. We've not overlooked it at all, we're turning it over in our minds. Uh, Another one is grin and bear it, but actually it's grimace and bear it and people generally notice that or we hand out the silent treatment and not many are fooled body language speaks a thousand words now listen carefully here I'm not trying to deny 
our immediate instinctive reactions when things don't go away, when, when, when things are irritating. I, I, I was talking to a couple of guys about how annoyed I get when church starts late in the evening service and Karen does occasionally have to say, watch your body language. Um, you know, we do upset, we, we sigh, we, we frown, we mutter, but it's to keep doing that. At that point we need to control ourselves and our reactions rather than lashing out. Uh, and if we decide to overlook it, you cannot go on sighing, sulking. You've actually got to really let it go. Another helpful discipline with a how is to presume the best about people until the facts absolutely prove otherwise. You don't assume they've always done something deliberately to get it. It's just as likely that they're forgetful or ignorant or have just learned a habit that's been ingrained over the years. They're not out for you. Um, you know, when, when government lets us down, um, they often say, don't they, that it's actually more often incompetence than conspiracy. Now, I'm not saying to be naive about the pervasive influence of corruption in our world, of sin. But the influence of sin is just as likely to be in you as is in them. It's just that we're generally more blind to our own sins. How do you cultivate forbearance? Here's, here's a little, um, little life hack. If Colossians 3, 12 to 14 was too long to memorise, just quietly, why not try Ephesians 4 and verse 2? Be completely humble and gentle... Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You can manage that one, Vince. All right. Both scriptures associate forbearance with the qualities, did you see, of patience and humility. Patience and humility. I hope you can see that I think a great deal of the book of Proverbs. I'm grateful to the first bishop I served under, Ray Smith, who had a pattern about whatever other Bible reading program he was following, he read a chapter of Proverbs every night, which means you get through Proverbs every month. Well, the 28-day thing, but you know what I mean. Uh, let's, let's look at uh, some of its wisdom on patience. So, 1911, a man's wisdom gives him patience... It is to his glory to overlook an offence. The idea with Proverbs is not to rush them. Um, the introduction, uh, Proverbs 1.6, says the book contains actually proverbs and parables and riddles of the wise. Riddles, I mean, we don't do them much anymore, but those things that you've got to chew over, puzzle out, reflect on, they're designed to make you think deeper. Um, I think too often we dip into Proverbs. Remember you oldies, you used to sample the mixed lollies at the old corner shop? You, you sort of, I have one of those and two of those, a couple of bite-sized Proverbs, handy snack for Christians on the go. These riddles cannot be gobbled in a hurry. And it's got to be chewed over thoughtfully. Pause and notice the end of verse 11. It's to your glory to overlook an offence. You cover yourself in glory by being patient. Patience is a beautiful thing. Look what a patient man can do. He can calm a quarrel. Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. 
He's more valuable than a successful military commander. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city. Which, in a way, associates patience with courage. It's not weak to overlook an offence. You might be genuinely angry and there is such a thing as righteous anger and so it can take great strength to control your anger, to control your temper, but it's of more strategic value than military might. And a patient man never gives up. Proverbs 25.15 Through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Isn't that amazing image? I mean, literally, it's absurd. A bone is hard, a tongue is squashy. But God's word says that gentleness in speech can crack the hardest nut. It's not pushiness that persuades a ruler, but patience. It goes with persistence, perseverance. Which of these proverbs do you need to chew on to pray about? So value patience and you cultivate forbearance. What of humility? The other thing that Colossians and Ephesians associate with forbearance. Humility means removing the logs from your own eye. Matthew 7 verse 3, and I just want to say as I I bookmarked this before, I still got a Friday morning men's growth group 2004 bookmark and uh, most of you blokes are still here. Praise God for that. Here in my Bible. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So humility doesn't rush into judging others. Followers of Jesus' teaching here believe we should suspect ourselves before we suspect others. Now, of course, we don't like to admit we've sinned. Uh, We minimise or rationalise our wrongdoing. It was just, um, I misspoke. Uh, Or we say, yes, I, I know it wasn't great, but the other person was worse. And it kind of excuses our conduct. Matthew 7 says, that's hypocrisy. Suspect yourself before you suspect others. Christians can ask God, pray, to help us see our own sins clearly and to repent, regardless of what others will do. And of course, searching scripture may help show where you have not lined up with God's will. Secondly, ask a mature Christian to give you some feedback. You know, if you're in a dispute... Uh, ask a friend to critique your role in it. You, you, you may need to disguise some of the features so as not to gossip, but let them critique you. You may not always like what he or she says, but remember the wounds of a friend could help you see your blind spots. 
Uh, C.J. Mahaney's little book, Humility. It's only one on the bookstore, I think. Well worth a read. He defines humility as, quote, honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So he says you cultivate humility by studying the attributes of God, uh, doctrines of his grace, and the doctrine of sin. So meditate on the goodness, graciousness of God, that our salvation, it's all of him. Well, that humbles you, none of my works. And compare it to the pervasive and hardening effects of sin in us all, well, it just cuts you down to size. So, like Sandy, he uh, the, yeah, uh, he advises inviting and welcoming correction from others. But they can see what you don't. Uh, ask a spouse, ask a friend, do I ever apologise? Do I ever confess, confess my sin? Uh, or, or do I always make it con- conditional? Uh, do others find it easy to correct me? Mahaney, he says, don't be put off by the fact that your friend's observation will never be 100% right. Quote, humility doesn't demand mathematical precision from others' input. Humility postures itself to receive God's grace from any avenue possible. And then on the flip side, Mahaney also speaks of looking for evidence of grace in other people. He says it's another way of cultivating humility. Uh, Marriage counselling, he asks a husband and a wife uh, to identify evidence of grace in the other's life. Um, I was just reading, uh, really enjoying it, the biography of Marcus Lone's life, uh, the four archbishops of Sydney ago, and actually begins with his ancestors in Tasmania. And there's this little thing where... Uh, husband and wife think often of the virtues and speak little of the vices. Just... It's been, he says, Mahaney, if it's been longer than a week since you specifically and sincerely informed your child of an evidence of grace you've seen in their life, that's been too long. Now, that's a rebuke to me. Uh, so many specks and even so many logs in their life I've noticed and overlook the good things, the noble and praiseworthy things, we should thank God for them. Quote, Only those who are humble can consistently identify evidence of grace in others who need adjustment. The others still need adjustment, yes, and you only see the grace if you humble yourself, something that the proud and the self-righteous are incapable of. I've already forgotten how many hymns, which hymns we've sung today. Uh, do we do when I survey yet? We did, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, on which the Prince of Glory died, the cross, the wondrous cross. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Christians believe the surest way to squash the Lucy Darcy syndrome is to look to the cross. John Stott said, every time we look to the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Well, shall I say that again? Yes, I will. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. 
So nothing in all history, nothing in the universe, cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us can have inflated views of ourselves, uh, self-righteousness, until we visit a place called Calvary. It's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Stand close to the cross. The cross never flatters us, says Stott. He wrote, Far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness and we can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. Drink deeply of what Christ bore for you and it will help you bear with others.